are continuing in our series, Rough Crowd, going through the life of Joseph. And I know most of us have probably been here for every week of the series, but if you haven't, let us uh, kind of catch you up to speed on uh, what Joseph is all about. We read about him in the book of Genesis, and when we meet him, he is 17 years old. His dad, Jacob, has four wives, and out of those four wives, his wife, Rachel, he loves her more than the other wives. He's showing some favoritism. And so naturally, her children, uh, which Joseph is her son, uh, is going to be his favorite kid. So Joseph, out of his 12 brothers, he is the favorite child. And Jacob shows that. It makes it very obvious. Everyone knows it. And uh, his brothers don't love that. They're jealous. They hate him. And to make matters even worse, Joseph had a dream uh, actually, a couple of dreams that said basically came down to, hey, guys, one day I, I had this dream. One day you're going to bow down to me. And they didn't love that, obviously. And so what they did is they plotted to kill him. And they kind of talked themselves out of that. And so they did something a little better. They sold Joseph into slavery. At 17 years old, he leaves his home in Canaan and is taken to Egypt. And he's uh, under... Uh, the authority of a guy named Potiphar. That's uh, who his master ends up being. And no matter where Joseph went, the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph every step of the way. And so Joseph uh, worked hard. He made the best out of the situation. And it says in Potiphar's house that he kind of rose up the ranks and Potiphar noticed, hey, this kid is good. He's successful. I'm going to put him in charge of everything. And that's what happens. Until one day... Uh, Actually, multiple days, Potiphar's wife saw Joseph and wanted to sleep with him. And so she kept asking him day after day, and he said, no, no, no. He didn't want to sin against God. He's like, Potiphar has put me in charge of all this. How could I, you know, do that to him? I can't, I can't disobey God in that way. And she's had enough. So one day, if, she, if, she's, if he's not going to sleep with her, she's going to ruin his life. So she wrongly accuses him, tells everyone that, hey, Joseph tried to rape me. And Potiphar has him thrown in prison. So he is unjustly uh, thrown into prison. But even there, God is with him. He works hard, makes the best out of a situation. And even in prison, he rises up the ranks to become in charge of everything there. And one day, in chapter 40, we see uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the number one most powerful man on the planet, had two employees, the cupbearer and the baker. And they were thrown into prison. They made Pharaoh mad or they did something. And uh, they were in prison and they meet Joseph. And Joseph sees them and notices they're down one day. And it's because they had dreams that we just don't know what they mean. No one will tell us. And Joseph says, man, interpretations, like God has given me the ability to do that. So God can help you out. And here's what your dreams mean. He tells the cupbearer, your dream means that in three days, you will be restored to your position with Pharaoh. That's great news. But uh, one thing with that, when you get out, remember me. Joseph tells him, hey, uh, just tell somebody about me. I don't really deserve to be down here. Get me out. And he goes, okay, no problem. Gotcha. And then the baker says, hey, that's a pretty good interpretation. Let me get one. And Joseph says, your dream means that in three days, 
you're going to die. And uh, so obviously, not that great, but those, both dreams, they happen. And the cupbearer is restored to his position, but he forgets about Joseph. It says two years go by, and he is still in prison. But one day, again, two years later, uh, the Pharaoh himself has a dream. And no one can tell him what it means. But the cupbearer, the light bulb finally goes off and he says, oh, wait a minute. I know a guy. Joseph in prison. He told me my dream. He can tell you yours. So they grab Joseph from prison, clean him up, take him to Pharaoh. And he says, hey, God can tell you what this means. He's trying to give you kind of a heads up about the next 14 years. And here's what they mean. The first seven years will be great. Will prosper Harvest will be awesome, we'll have plenty of food, no problems. But then the second seven years, there will be a drought. And we're not going to have any food. And it's going to be tough. So bad that we won't even remember how good we had it. And Joseph tells him, hey, what you need to do is find somebody that, I don't know, is wise, <laughs> is hardworking, uh, can, can really do this job well for you to set you up for success. And Pharaoh's like, you're right, who can we find that's as wise as you, as Joseph? And so probably in a matter of 20 minutes, Joseph goes from prison to power. He is the second in command of Egypt. No one is as powerful as he is other than Pharaoh himself. And that's where we left off last week, that he has a new job. He was given a wife to marry. Everything changed for him. And just like he said, the seven years began. Everything was great. And he taxed 20% of their grain, saved it for the drought so that they could have food. And it says they collected so much that they just stopped counting. Like it wasn't even measurable anymore. They had so much extra food, which was great. And in those seven years, not only that changed, but Joseph had even more changes to his life. Chapter 41, verse 50. It says, two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, his wife, priest on, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he becomes a father and the names are interesting. They're not Egyptian names, they're Jewish names. Names that connect him with his history, with his home, with God's people. And the first one is Manasseh, which means God has made me forget my hardship and my family. And this doesn't mean that he literally forgot, like he doesn't even know what happened. It means that he's been able to move on. It means that he let that stuff go. That yeah, that was a rough chapter with a rough crowd but I will not be defined by my past. And the second kid, Ephraim, that means that God has made me fruitful or blessed me in the land of my affliction. He's saying that God has blessed me here. Not only is he faithful, but he is gracious. Like I shouldn't even be here right now. This is not my home, but God has been more than good to me. That's, things are going well for Joseph. But that was the first seven years. Then, the seven years of drought started. And thankfully, because of Joseph, Egypt was prepared for it. They were ready. 
that people in Egypt came to, to Pharaoh crying out to him saying, we need food. Like, feed us. We're hungry. We need help. And Pharaoh, the Bible says every time, he just pointed them to Joseph and said, uh, the Bible says, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Kind of sounds like a parent. Like, yeah, do whatever your mom tells you. You know, that kind of thing. That's what Pharaoh was doing every time. He says, go to Joseph. But this drought wasn't just in Egypt. Verse 57 says, every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. And here, the scene shifts. Here's where the setting changes from Egypt to Canaan, where his family, where Joseph is from, where his family lives. And as we move forward, I want us to look at the brothers. I want us to notice that you're going to see a change in them. And let's see what it looks like to have true change or true repentance in their life and how do we have the same thing. So Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. There's a lot of recap, but uh, you guys ready? Okay, not good enough. First of all, this is my favorite story, just personally, of the, of the whole Bible. I need to know that Tiff and Grace is ready for Joseph. Are you ready? Yes. That's better. Okay, chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he thought something might happen to him. Jacob, he kind of sounds like a grumpy old man, doesn't he? He's just like, what are you guys doing there just staring at each other? We got money, we have silver, but we can't eat that. Go to Egypt, buy us some food, and come back. And he is telling them to do this, but there's 11 brothers, and only 10 begin this journey to Egypt. And that's because Jacob is not risking losing his son Benjamin. Joseph was his favorite son, but now that he's presumably dead, Benjamin is, and he's like, I, no shot, I'm losing him. So 10 of you go, Benjamin stays. And he's still showing favoritism, still fearful. Verse 5 says that the sons of Israel, which is just another name for Jacob, so the sons of Jacob were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. So 10 of them, they travel to Egypt, and they're in the presence of this high government official. Joseph knows it's them, but they don't know it's Joseph. They're unaware that it's their brother. And so all 10 brothers bow down to him. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like a dream that Joseph had 21 years earlier? A dream that his brothers hated so much that they did whatever they could to stop it from becoming a reality. They were willing to sell their own brother, their own flesh and blood to slavery to make sure, yeah, we're never bowing down to that kid. What's funny is they spent so much time and effort trying to stop this from happening, but they actually set God's plan into motion. And we see it's a lot of irony in the story. And Joseph hasn't seen them in over two decades 
He's matured. He's developed as a man. God has blessed him. He's been able to move on from the pain in his family. But in a single moment, it all comes rushing back to him. Like just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. Think about it. He hasn't seen them in over 20 years. And in an instant, he is flooded with all of the emotions, all the memories, all the pain that he has from this family. And this is where things get interesting. Joseph could have immediately said, hey guys, it's me, Joseph. But he doesn't. He kind of plays things differently here. He begins to test his brothers. He wants to see if these are the same jealous, bitter, uh, selfish, insecure brothers that they were when he knew them. The ones that wanted to kill him and eventually sell him. And he wants to know if they have truly changed, if they have truly repented. So he plays it off like he doesn't know them. And he actually accuses them of being spies. He said, you guys aren't here to buy food. Things don't add up. You're here to scope out our land. You want to find our weaknesses, your spies. And the brothers are like, no, not spies, just hungry. (laughs) Like we're a family. We're here to buy food. And they begin to lay out their family kind of dynamics to Joseph. Verse 13, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and the one is no longer living. They're saying, hey, we have a younger brother, Benjamin, he's at home. And we have another brother who's no longer living. Now, maybe they really believe he's dead, or they've just convinced themselves that he's dead, because it's easier to believe that he died than it is to believe that he spent the rest of his life as a slave. And so um, either way, they're saying, yeah, we, that's our family. We're not here. We're not spies. But to give Joseph a little more time to think, he throws them in prison for three days. It says that initially he spoke to them harshly. Joseph is probably really emotional, so he puts them in prison for three days. Three days later, gets them out and says, here's what we're going to do. You say you're not spies, prove it. I'm going to test you. I'm going to test your words. Nine of you, out of ten, nine of you I'm going to let go home. We'll we'll give you food. We'll we'll let you go feed your family. And you are going to bring your brother Benjamin back to prove that you're not spies, to prove that you're telling the truth. And one of you, we're going to keep as collateral, one of you will keep in prison while that happens. And so that's Uh, exactly what happens. But before that does, we realize that this trip to Egypt for the brothers, it's not going as they expected, right? They realize, oh man, one of us is going to be in prison, then we have to go get Benjamin, which is probably impossible from our dad. But notice what's on their mind as this is happening. Verse 21, then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but, he, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They have no idea that they're dealing with Joseph. But they're connecting what's happening to them now with what they did to Joseph 20 years later. Because it must be God punishing us for what we did to him. Like we heard him screaming in the pit. We, we knew we should have rescued him. We knew it was wrong, but we didn't 
care. We didn't listen, and now we're paying for it. I just think about this. 20 years has gone by, but this sin, this wrong that they've done is still in the front of their minds. Probably not a day goes by where they don't think about this or they don't regret the decisions they made. But that's what happens to a guilty conscience. That you begin to think that everything that happens to you is God or something working against you to punish you. And they were living with the weight of keeping their sins a secret for year after year. And the guilt builds up and it completely steals their peace. But while they were talking and while they're just telling each other, hey, God is getting back at us. Joseph, in that moment, it says that um, Joseph grabbed Simeon, the second oldest brother, and threw him into prison right in front of him. And then from there, they begin their journey home. But remember, Joseph is testing them to see their character. So without the brother knowing, or without the, the nine brothers knowing, they put grain in their bags, they load up their donkeys to, to head home, and he places the silver that they brought to Egypt to pay for their grain, he placed that in their bags. And so they didn't realize it, but they head home and they stop for the night and one of them goes to feed their donkey and probably reaches in the bag um, to get some food and realizes, uh-oh, the silver's in here. And their initial response is, we're in trouble. <laughs> they say, what has God done to us? And it wasn't just one. It says when they went home, all of them started unpacking and realized every brother has the silver that they took to Egypt. It's still in their bag. And so they are terrified because not only did we go there and we're already accused of being spies, but now they're going to think that, that we stole from, there, stole from them. Now they think that we're thieves. And so they are just, they're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. And on top of that, they have to go back home to their dad and tell him why they lost another son. <laughs> like they went with 10, came back with nine, and uh, they, it seems small, but we see a little bit of growth here in the brothers because they told Jacob, their dad, what happened. They told the truth. They could have lied. They could have came home and said, hey, dad, uh, so Simeon's not here, but he decided to stay in Egypt. Like it's really nice there. They have food. He just likes it better. So he just didn't come back. They didn't lie. They told the truth even when it was difficult. And uh, we see that they've, they're not the same brothers that they were. But Jacob responds to this awful news. He says, it's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. And you see just how dramatic he is. And, and you're saying that the world is against me. The Reuben said, then Reuben said to his father, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob answered, my son will not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to shale or death in sorrow. And Reuben, the oldest son, kind of says, hey, Dad, uh, if it makes you feel better, if something happens to Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. As if that's supposed to help make him feel better. But that offer is obviously declined. But when Jacob's speaking, 
listen to how crazy he sounds. He is speaking to nine of his sons, but basically is saying that he doesn't care about them. Like almost as if they're not even a part of the family or they don't even exist. He said, one of my sons is already gone and I only have one left, Benjamin. And he's just showing so much favoritism that his, his favorite son was Joseph, but when he left or when he died, or he thinks he's dead, he shifted his favoritism to Benjamin. And it's the same thing once again. Jacob hasn't changed. And it has to be so hurtful to the, to the sons, to the brothers, to hear this. Like their dad doesn't even care about them. But eventually, a few months go by, maybe a year goes by, they run out of food that they brought back from Egypt the first time. Jacob realizes this and says, hey, we need more food. And Judah is like, okay, well, remember, Dad, uh, the guy that we talked to said that if we need to show him Benjamin, like to prove that we're not lying. So he said, we're not going to see him, we're not getting food, and we won't see Simeon ever again if we don't bring Benjamin with us. So if we can't bring Benjamin, we're not going. And Judah, if you remember Judah, we, we, we had a whole kind of week dedicated to his story with Judah and Tamar. Uh, of, of just his biggest mistake of his life, Judah, that one, shows himself to be the leader of the pack. Verse, chapter 38, sorry, chapter 43, verse 8. Then Judah said to Jacob, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die, neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. He says, I'll take ownership of Benjamin. If something happens to him, it's on me. I'll take care of him. And what's funny is as we talk about Benjamin, it almost has a tone of like, hey, make sure to take care of your, your little brother. You know, it almost sounds like he's 5 or 10 or maybe even a teenager. Roughly, he's about 25 years old. He has his own family. Like he is a grown man that Jacob will not let go. And after all the pain that Jacob has caused his family, Judah easily could have been like, Dad, I've had enough. Like I'm done with this. He could have not cared, but he stepped up and made the right call. And so Jacob uh, reluctantly was like, fine. If Benjamin has to go, take him. It's fine. Go. Get us some food. And it almost seems, as we read verse 14, it almost seems like Jacob has some faith. He says, may God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your older brother or your other brother and Benjamin to you. He doesn't even use Simeon's real name. He's like, hopefully he'll release the, you know, what's his name, the one in prison. Oh, yeah, Simeon. Like, he, he doesn't even associate him being his son. He says, hopefully your brother is released and Benjamin. And it sounds like he's trusting in God a little bit, but nope, false alarm. Second half of the verse. As for me, if I am deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. He says, if I lose my two sons, I've already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, I have nothing. If I don't have him, I have nothing. But he does allow him to go. And with Benjamin on the team, it's Egypt. Round two. And so they arrive, and when they get there, Joseph sees them, 
and Joseph tells his staff, hey, um, invite them to dinner or invite them to a meal, prepare a feast, get the house ready, make sure they're at my house. So they get a personal invitation from the second most powerful man on the planet. And you would think they'd be excited, but no, because even good things uh, can seem bad to a guilty conscience. Verse 18, but the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, we have been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. And I love this part of the verse. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. <laughs> like they're just a bunch of country boys worried about their donkeys. That's all they are. And, uh, and they, they could be slaves, but man, got to worry about them animals. Like they, that's what's on their mind. And they're concerned that they're going to pay for the silver that they mistakenly took the first time. And so because they're worried about it, they, uh, they make their way to one of Joseph's servants and talk to him and say, hey, uh, good to see you. Thanks for having us over. Last time we were here, we accidentally took some silver back with us. We meant to pay for the grain. We don't know how it happened, but we didn't mean to steal it. That was not our intention. And, and the servant goes, hey, no worries. Don't be afraid. You're taken care of. And they go, okay, whew, great. Appreciate that. And in that moment, they brought Simeon out. They're reunited. They are brought into Joseph's house. They cleaned them up. And the Bible says, don't worry. They even took care of the donkeys. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house. And they bowed to the ground before him. This time, all 11 brothers are bowing down to Joseph. Again, this is all of them making us remember the dreams that Joseph had in chapter 37. And so they're talking and, and Joseph comes in and he's, you know, welcoming them. Say, hey guys, good to see you. Uh, you make yourself at home. Hey, how's, uh, how's your dad doing? Is, is he alive? And they say, yeah, our dad's great. He's alive and well. And out of one of the brothers, Joseph sees one of them that he really doesn't recognize. One that he hasn't seen for 22 years, that the last time he saw, he was an infant. He was probably two or three years old. In verse 29, it says, when he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, again, his only full brother, he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. Regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. And so he had to pretend like he wasn't just weeping and bawling his eyes out in the other room. He is overcome with emotion. And notice here the humanity of Joseph. The brokenness that he is showing right now. Like he has everything you could want. He has money, he has the job, he has a wife, he has kids, he has authority, he has respect. But what he wants more than all those things is a right relationship with his family. He wants to make sure that the God that's changed him has also changed his brothers. And he may be testing them, it may be seem, it, maybe it seems like you know, he's just kind of um, you know, teasing them or... Um, 
playing all these tricks on him. But his motive is always to bring his family back together. And so they're, they're in the house, they're ready to eat, and Joseph, he begins seating them, like telling them where to sit. And here, he's just having fun with this. Verse 33, they were seated before him in order by age, from the firstborn, Reuben, to the youngest. The men looked at each other in astonishment. So he's, he tells them, hey, Reuben's to here, uh, Levi's to here, Benjamin's to here. And it's in order by age, and their minds are blown. And then they have the meal. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. It says they drank and became drunk with Joseph. And here we see another test, that just as Joseph was the youngest son, the favorite, Joseph shows special treatment to Benjamin. The, the new favorite child. And they want to see how the brothers are going to react to that. So it says that they get five times the amount, or that Benjamin gets five times the amount of food and maybe even better food. And so we can probably see how this goes, that uh, maybe the, the brothers, they get an eight-ounce steak, but Benjamin, he gets a 40-ounce steak. Or maybe uh, you know, Benjamin gets his entire apple pie to himself, but then the brothers just get like a slice of minced meat or something, I don't know. And uh, all the brothers, uh, they just get like a glass of Pepsi. But Benjamin, he gets Coke. You know, it's just better, right? And uh, like they're showing special treatment to him, seeing how the brothers will respond. The old brothers would have been jealous, would have hated him for that. But the new brothers, they don't seem to have a problem with it. So it says they ate, they drank, they had a great time, and the next morning they, they got what they came for, they have Simeon, and they're headed back with some food. But Joseph still has one final test. And what he does, he tells his servant, hey, before my brothers leave, do three things. One, load up their, their bags with as much grain as you can. Give them as much food as, as you can give them. Two, Give back the silver, place the silver in their bags once again. And three, place my personal silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And what I want you to do is when they leave the city, I want you to find or kind of track them down and then accuse them of stealing my cup. And that's exactly what happened. The servant, uh, the brothers left, the servant found them not too far from the city. And uh, he, he, he runs to them and says, why have you repaid evil for good? Why did you steal the cup? And the brothers are just going, what are you talking about? Why would we steal anything? Like, we brought back the silver last time. None of us took anything from anyone. They were so confident that they said, all right, I'll tell you what. If you find the cup in one of our bags, you can kill that person and take the rest of us as slaves. That's how confident we are that no one took anything. And the servants, you know, just, okay, that's bold, but it's not needed. The servant said, whoever is found with the cup, they will be our slave. Everyone else can go free. In verse 11, it says, they were confident. So they quickly lowered, so each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. 
When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. So they were certain it probably went down the line. They started with Reuben, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, like down the line. And they're saying, told you so, told you so, told you so. But then Benjamin was found with the cup and they were uh, broken. It says they tore their clothes as a sign of like distress and sorrow. And they, uh, Benjamin was found guilty. But they had an opportunity here because a lot of these instances uh, kind of reflect times in their past. This is a perfect opportunity for them to abandon their favorited, spoiled little brother just like they left Joseph. Okay, he's a slave. Doesn't mean we have to be. Uh, see you, man. We're out. Or they also have an opportunity to put their selfish interests before their dad's. They know that this would break his heart. They know that, okay, well, hey, he's a slave. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. But these guys aren't the same. They don't ditch Benjamin. They go back to Egypt with him. And out of all the change in the brothers, we see the most in Judah. He steps up. He takes leadership in this pivotal moment. Verse 16 of chapter 44. What can we say to my Lord? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. He's not just for the cup. He's saying, hey, we've done a lot of wrong. Our past is full of sin. We've made mistakes. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Joseph says, I swear I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. Father, Judah acknowledges the sin that they've committed in their past, and they take ownership. They are willing to be slaves. But Joseph says, no, not needed. Just Benjamin. The rest of you, you can go. And so Judah makes one final plea to let Benjamin go. And it's uh, um, quite a few verses, but we're just going to read the last three. Verse 32. It says, your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. I told my dad that I would be personally responsible for Benjamin. If anything happens to him, like, I'm in trouble. I can't go back with him. So take me instead. Let me stay in place of him. Dad doesn't really care about me, but he loves Benjamin. So let me switch for him. I know the cup was found in his bag, but I'll stay here in place of him. Let him go home. Judah realizes this is it. This is the moment that could change everything for their family. And so Judah lays out his appeal with all he's got. And Joseph responds in the, next few, in, the, in the next few verses and says, come back next week to find out. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. This is where we're going to stay. But this is the moment. This is like the pinnacle of the story. This is where everything, this is the make or break moment. And notice what's happening here. Judah has changed 
He is not the same person that he was 22 years ago. Judah, who wanted to kill his brother. Judah, who, whose idea it was to sell him into slavery. Judah, who has no problem lying to his dad. Judah, who has a whole chapter in the Bible dedicated to his rock bottom moment and his mistakes. Judah, who is selfish, greedy, calloused, envious. Judah, who doesn't have to do this, is self-sacrificially offering his life for another. Saying, don't punish him, punish me. I'll stay here in place of him. I will be his substitute so that he can go free. That should remind us of someone else in the Bible. Because if this isn't a picture, an Old Testament picture of Jesus, I don't know what is. That's exactly what he did for us. That we are guilty. He, Jesus, is innocent. He willingly took our punishment for us through his death on the cross so that we could be free from the wrath of God. And that's the gospel. That is the good news. That is what the entire Bible points to. The person and work of Jesus. And also, at the point in the story, Jacob the dad, he knows that God has chosen him to continue the covenant with his people. Like that through Jacob's family, somewhere down the line, someone will be born to bless the entire world through his descendants. But we just don't know which son it's going to be. It seems like, wow, Jason, or Joseph would be a pretty good you know, option, right? Like he seems like he's got it all together, kind of the best of the brothers. But it's not Joseph. It's Judah. Judah is the one that through his descendants, through his family tree, through his lineage, Jesus our Savior is born. And we see why God chose him in this moment. Because Judah has shown that true change or true repentance has taken place in his life. And that was the goal of Judah's test, or sorry, Joseph's test, to see if their repentance was genuine. And so for us, looking at that, Joseph was trying to see, okay, I know they want to change, they feel bad, but have they truly repented? Have they truly started to live different? He gave them a test. Now for us, I want to also give us a test. Like how can we tell if maybe there's areas in our life that we know, we know does not honor God, we want to change, we want to be better, how can we tell if our repentance is genuine? How can we tell if we're headed in the right direction? So what is the test for repentance? And just because I'm weird like this, I remember these things better, I made an acronym, okay? <laughs> the test for repentance is the ACT. Most of us probably remember the ACT. Some of you guys are like, oh, no, not again, right? But it's the test we take before college, see how, like, ready we are. But this isn't that. This is the test of repentance. We need to ACT three things that we saw in Judah's life that we should see in ours. We acknowledge our sin, we change our actions, and we turn to God. So if we truly want to repent, first thing, we acknowledge our sin. Judah did that. Judah said, God has exposed our iniquity. He acknowledged the wrong that they have done. He recognized where they messed up. And they took ownership of that. He's not making excuses going, oh, well, I, I had no option or, you know, what, I was just young and dumb. He took ownership of what he's done wrong. And to repent 
simply means to change your mind. So for us, when we want to truly do that, we recognize that, hey, I've been thinking wrong, I've been living wrong, and I want to commit to doing better. We acknowledge our sin against God. But not only that, we see, we change our actions. It's not good enough to just feel bad for your sins. A lot of us probably do that every day. Feel bad about something we're doing. We know we should do better, uh, but it should lead us to action, to change. And part of that comes from learning from our previous mistakes. Judah learned, and I know this seems like an obvious one, but he learned, hey, it's not honoring to God for me to sell my brother to slavery. I shouldn't lie to my dad. I shouldn't be selfish. I shouldn't be greedy. And when he had a chance to do it all over again, he chose to obey God instead of not obey God. And when God gave him an opportunity to correct it, he did. And God will also give us opportunities to do the same. Maybe we're sitting here going, I just need to stop gossiping. I feel bad about it, but I find myself, uh, find myself in those situations and I still do it anyway. I know I need to share my faith and I feel bad for it, but I had another opportunity again and I did the same thing. We don't just want to feel bad for it. We want to change our actions. When we acknowledge our sin, that should lead our habits, our actions to be different. But notice, it's not us that is just able to do this. It's not just, hey, be better. We acknowledge our sin, we change our actions, and then we t turn to God. The change that comes in our lives is not accomplished by us trying harder. It comes from us turning to God as the only solution. And so maybe it's initially for our sin, saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I have done wrong. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to change my ways. So I'm turning to you and your free gift of your son to save me. Or maybe it's something us as believers that we struggle with. Maybe it's, God, I acknowledge I'm just impatient with people. Like, I don't, I'm not as gracious with them as I should be. I don't love people like you're calling me to love them. I'm, I acknowledge that, and I'm committing to being more humble, being more kind, being more compassionate instead of being selfish. And so I turn to you as my only hope. God, I can't do this alone on my own strength. I need you to help me. Don't believe that true change comes from your efforts, comes from God working inside of us. God sent Jesus to save us from the penalty of sin. He's also capable of saving us from the power of sin in our daily lives. And so if you really want to know, okay, am I headed in the right direction? Have I repented from my sin? Have we acknowledged, our, have we acknowledged it? Have we changed our actions and have we turned to God as our hope? Repentance isn't something we do just once. We do need it to be saved, but it's something that's ongoing. It's a conviction of sin that leads us to trust in the power of God to change us every single day. It is a constant mindset that we keep in our faith. Always figuring out, okay, how am I not honoring God? And how can I turn from that sin and turn to him? That I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm going to turn 180 and go towards God. Always looking for ways to do that. So this morning, I don't know what that is for you. 
but what do you need to repent of? What is something that maybe you know, maybe it's this ongoing sin, maybe you feel stuck, maybe it's like, yeah, I've never told anyone that, or there's no way, it's hopeless. What do you need to acknowledge? Commit to changing your actions and turning to God, not trying to solve this on your own effort or your own merit, but saying, God, help me, I can't do it. Maybe you even feel bad about it, you're guilty, but if we want to truly repent, it's followed with action and a greater faith in God that he will work in us. So what do you need to repent of? Ask yourself that this morning and ask God to help you live more like him, be more like Jesus. Let me pray for us that, that he would change us. God, we, um, we do not deserve anything that you give us. You created us. And we've used that freedom to sin against you. But in spite of our sin, you love us. And you show that love, you showcase it through your son Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And I pray that we would all acknowledge that truth, that we would repent of our sin and turn to him as a solution. And God, I pray for everyone in this room that we are not perfect, God. We know that. But I pray that we would specifically figure out that you would reveal to us, show us, how we need to change, what we need to get rid of in our life and help us to look to you as a solution and not ourselves and not effort and not trying harder, but God, we are looking to you and your strength and your spirit and your power. Help us to turn to you, God, knowing that you're all we have. You're the only solution, you're our only hope, not only for eternity, not only for salvation, but God, to live a life that honors you. We need your help. Help us to do that and change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.